bless you for the work that you're doing in our hearts right now. We bless you, Lord. We love you. Lord, I lift up my sister. Would you bring freedom and bring healing? Lord, renew her mind. Lord, where there are others who are battling the will, battling emotions, battling anxiety and fear and lust, battling the works of the flesh and the mind of the flesh, Lord, I pray that you would come break them out. Lord, set them free. Kids and kids workers, go ahead and, and slip out quietly. I want you guys to stay right here and I want you to turn your attention to a memory, <clears throat> a memory of a time when you were with the people that you love the most in the world. And take yourself back to that situation and remember it. I want you to remember how you felt. Maybe it was your wedding. Maybe, um, maybe it was a family vacation. Maybe it was a reunion with old friends. I want you to put yourself back in that moment. I want you to think about the joy that you felt in that moment. Now start to reimagine what that event would be like if those people that you love the most had chosen to not be there for the lamest excuses and all the unnecessary obligations that are far less valuable. I want to take us to those heart-level feelings that we all know and connect them to this sermon series. This isn't just information. This is intended to get to the heart. We all need fellowship, and we all love fellowship. And the fact is that we were made for fellowship with Jesus, and that communion is far greater than anything we feel with anyone in this world. The fact is that Jesus has so graciously made it possible for us to enter into communion with our Creator. And in the same breath, it must be said that He didn't do that for us to do it alone. Communion with the Lord has always been intended to be done in community with his people. To come to the table with Jesus is to come to the table with his church. And to love God means that you love people. Yet we've been too conditioned by the world and we're too busy for this. We just want to go, go, go. We're too busy. This is what we've been going after in the sermon series. Yet we all know the joy of fellowship, and we all want the joy of fellowship because we were made for it. And so let that heart feeling connect you to this sermon series. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6.
We've been in this sermon series for six weeks now. You guys believe that? It's been six weeks we've been talking about being too busy for a seat at the table. And so far we've spent the series talking primarily about our time. We've talked about that tightly wound spring that causes perpetual anxiety and exhaustion and it leaves us spiritually shriveled, right? But today we're going to go a step beyond our busy schedules because there's another layer to this problem. Not only are we just too busy, but we also have too much stuff. the same divided heart that drives us into busyness that also drives us to clutter. And too much stuff in our calendars goes hand in hand with too much stuff in our closet. Misusing our time is inextricably linked to misusing our treasure. In other words, not having enough time and having too much stuff are closely related symptoms of the same heart problem. So let's read today from Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 19. Get your Bibles before you. This is the word of God. Jesus says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. For no one can serve two masters, either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Would you guys pray again with me just for a moment? We need spiritual discernment here. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would send your spirit upon us in greater measure right now and pour out your grace upon us to receive the words that you taught in a way that brings transformation. Lord, we need to be changed by this, and we need the spiritual discernment that drives us into a life that looks like yours. So, Lord, would you give your grace to us now? Lord, would you pour out your grace upon us? We don't deserve it, but you've called us to come boldly into the throne room and ask for it when we need help. And so we need the help now, and we need the grace now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I want to share a story with you guys. When I was in eighth grade, I was enlightened for the first time to the world of stuff. I got this job working for a, a man named Joe who had about five acres and he had this massive red three-story barn. He had this huge detached garage and most of my job was spent doing landscaping, painting, maintenance, washing his cars. 
But every Saturday, we spent the morning preparing for him to go to auction because Joe was an antique collector. And so every Saturday morning, we would load up his 12-passenger van with boxes and boxes of stuff to go to the auction. And after the auction took place, he would come home with his haul, and we would unload the van and go put it in the barn. The guy had a steady stream of stuff going in and out, in and out, all the time. And his collection, to be honest with you, was remarkable. I wish that I could show you guys a video tour of it. It was incredible. In this barn, on the second floor, it was like a museum. There was the Lincoln Library, and in there was wall-to-wall, ceiling-to-ceiling books about Abraham Lincoln. There was display cases all around the room with statues and memorabilia and little trinkets all about Abe Lincoln. It was packed. And then right next to that room was the general store. And he had this whole room decked out like a turn-of-the-century general store. It was complete with the barber shop, with the drug store, with rows of shelves, with goods, everything. It was like an actual store. And then next to that, there was the toy room where he had half the room set up in like memorial to Charles Lindbergh and the other half of the room was antique toys and he had like a full-size carousel horse and everything. It was incredible. But then you go downstairs in the barn and it's filled with antique farm tools and equipment. And then there's a room down there where he has antique film rolls stacked and stacked and stacked and projectors and he would watch these old films on these projectors. But then you go in the garage And he's got this old 1940s pickup truck under a tarp next to his Jaguar, which was under a tarp, which was next to another stack of boxes that couldn't make it into the barn. The place was incredible. And honestly, as a 13-year-old, sometimes I would be going into the barn for a purpose, and I would just get lost looking at the stuff. It was amazing. But unfortunately, when I was in about 10th grade or 11th grade, Joe died suddenly of a stroke. And that incredible collection all of a sudden became an unwanted burden on his widow. And my job then became primarily focused on how do we get rid of all this stuff. And so I spent the next year helping her get rid of it through auctions and donations and getting her ready to sell the property. Now, Joe was a unique guy. His collection was unique. But I've helped enough people move since then to realize he wasn't the only one who had a problem with stuff. It usually isn't until, sadly, someone dies or they move out of their house that they're really faced with the extent of their possessions. You guys can all remember a situation you've been in dealing with an estate or helping someone move out, and you just say, why did they have this? The fact is that we don't even realize how much stuff we collect until we're faced with the decision, move it or lose it. Storing up possessions is not strictly a modern problem. It's not entirely an American problem. But for modern Americans in our culture, this is a pervasive problem. I'm just going to say this in love. You have too much stuff. Well, you just do. I do. We all have too much stuff. 
And I'm going to, for a moment, bear with me, put on the Elijah mantle for a second, because we've got to talk about this American culture. The marketing engine that drives the American economy today is built upon principles of propaganda. And the propaganda is specifically designed to convince you that you need things. Check this out. This is from Edward Bernays, who was known as the father of modern public relations. He said this in 1928 in his book called Propaganda. He writes, if we understand the mechanism and motives of the group mind, is it not possible to control and regiment the masses according to our will without their knowing about it? The recent practice of propaganda has proved that it is possible, and those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. Whoa, that's scary. And we feel this right now over the last two years, am I right? Public relations has been largely shaped by his influence. This is not some obscure theorist. This is a guy who actually shaped our culture by putting into practice his theories. Like, the proof is in the pudding. He actually did these things. And so, to the point that even um, experts who have reviewed biographies about this man have said this, it's impossible to fundamentally grasp the social, political, and economic, and cultural developments of the past 100 years without some understanding of Bernays and his professional heirs in the public relations industry. You guys hear that? Take a breath for a minute. The culture that we live in right now is aggressively seeking to manipulate your desires and capitalize on your attachment to things. And think about this. The wealthiest people get wealthier when you buy new stuff. Just think about one person, Jeff Bezos. Throw his name out there. He has increased his wealth $86 billion in the last two years as we just keep ordering stuff on Prime again and again. Order it on Prime. Don't get it anywhere else. Just order it on Prime. Meanwhile, he is capitalizing on that. And beyond all of the retail industry, there are others who are making billions on people who buy new stuff and then they have nowhere to put it or they don't use it anymore and they get a storage unit. Dan talked about it last week. Last year alone, Americans spent $39 billion on storage units. But then, even beyond that, we love to watch TV about it, right? There's millions more being made because we like to watch other people's stuff on TV, and we like to look at how much worse their problem is than our problem. We've got storage wars, hoarders, swap shop, tidying up, you name it. The list goes on. The fact is we're obsessed with material possessions. We like buying them. We like getting them for free. We like trading them. We like getting discounts on them. We like stockpiling them. We like stacking them up in the garage. We just love stuff. And here's where we're going. Our busyness and our clutter go hand in hand with the current of our culture. Here's the pattern. We're busy working hard, right? How many of you guys work hard? 
We're busy working hard. And so we earn our money, and when we get it, we want to relieve the burden of that work. And so we buy stuff. Maybe sometimes it just feels good to buy something. Sometimes we want to buy a toy that we can go enjoy. But what happens is when we spend our money to buy stuff to relieve us from the busyness of work, we just further busy ourselves because then we have to use the thing that we bought. We've got to maintain the thing that we bought. We've got to store the thing that we've bought. We've got to figure out what to do with the other thing that already did the same thing that now we have double. And so all of a sudden, it's Monday and we've got to go back to work. And we've busied ourselves with the stuff. Here's what Richard Foster says about this culture of clutter. The fact is that our culture is conditioning us. And for the most part, the church isn't much different, right? Richard Foster says, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy, and we buy things we don't want to impress people we don't like. The mass media have convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. But it's time we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. Covetousness we call ambition, hoarding we call prudence, and greed we call industry. The church in our culture, in large part, has been conformed to a sick society. And we need help, do we not? Yes. We've walked in the counsel of the ungodly for too long. And what's the answer? Who was here for D.C. last week? What's the answer to walking in the counsel of the ungodly? We delight in the law of the Lord, right? We got to get in the word. The past few weeks, we've been hanging out in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light and he promises to give rest, right? You guys remember that from the last two weeks? But how do we get to that rest? What does he tell us to do? Somebody shout it out. What do we have to do to get that rest? We've got to come to him and take his yoke and what? Learn from him. That's what Mary was doing in Luke 10. She was sitting at his feet learning from him. Come to me and learn from me and you will find rest. The abundant life of a fruitful disciple that we all are after, it requires constantly, continually coming to the feet of Jesus, to coming to his table, as we've called it, to learn his lifestyle. John Comer, the guy who wrote the book uh, that Dan's been talking about, says that to learn from Jesus means that we trust that his teachings are actually the best way to live our life. You guys catch that? He's our Lord and Savior and our teacher, and so we must trust that he knows the best way for us to live. And so it's for that reason that we're diving into Matthew 6 today. Matthew 6 is a foundational passage when it comes to the teachings of Jesus, right? It's from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7 is that wider context of the Sermon on the Mount. This is like Jesus' famous teaching. 
right? If we want to learn his lifestyle and learn from his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to start. This is where Jesus lays out the way of the kingdom with authority, as we talked about earlier. He's teaching with authority. This is where Jesus gives us the heavenly perspective on how our lives should look. But then as we zoom into chapter 6, in the narrow context, Jesus begins discussing, in verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness. He's talking about how we live righteously. He's talking about practicing our faith in him, right? He's talking about the spiritual disciplines that should be regularly and purposefully part of our lives as a disciple. These teachings in Matthew 6 are actually the best way to live our life. You guys believe that? They are actually the best way to live your life. But they're really only truly applicable to those who have come to Jesus and taken his yoke upon them. Just following these teachings alone is not enough to save us. It doesn't justify us. But once we've come to Jesus and taken his yoke upon us by grace through faith in him, that is when we can put these things into practice. So look with me at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Let's see how Jesus addresses our problem of too much stuff. He speaks out unequivocally against the human attraction to possessions. Verse 19, here's the kingdom solution to the problem. And in typical Jesus fashion, he just bluntly and authoritatively cuts through the mess of culture and he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not. You guys hear that? Don't do it. Jesus prohibits storing up earthly treasures for yourself. Boom. Mic drop. Don't do it. <laughs> now, we all have a general idea what a treasure is, right? We all want treasure. But I think often when we read this, we just think about money, typically. We think about gold, silver. But I just want to add some clarity. The, the definition in our American English dictionary of treasure is not only wealth and money and jewels and precious metals, but it's also something of great worth or value or a collection of precious things. Here in the text in Matthew 6, it is clear from the next phrase that Jesus isn't just talking about money. He says, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Jesus is talking not just about a chest full of gold. He's talking more generally about things that can be eaten, corroded, stolen. He's talking about anything of value that is precious to us in the earth. He says, don't lay up for yourselves those types of treasures on the earth. Now, when we read the, the phrase lay up, I love March Madness. He's not talking about basketball. <laughs> He's not talking about an easy layup. He's talking about what he actually means is stockpiling things for later use. He's saying, don't store up for yourself things of value for future use. You catch that? To say that phrase in our culture, 
our culture of materialism, consumerism, it sounds insane. But here in the discourse on practicing righteousness, talking about prayer and fasting in secret before the Lord, in that context, Jesus says, oh, and by the way, don't make a practice of storing up earthly valuables for your future use. Why would he say that in the context of prayer and fasting? Why would he make that thing so fundamental as fasting and prayer for the disciple? Let's drill down here for a few minutes. It's fundamental for Jesus because, number one, earthly treasures are temporary. Those valuable, precious things that are very useful are temporary. Jesus is not making an argument here against ineffective methods of safekeeping. Do you catch that? He's not saying, like, because somebody can steal your car, don't, like, just go ahead and leave the keys in it. Don't bother protecting it. He's not saying that. Do you catch that? He's saying his actual argument is being made because we're good at protecting the temporary things. Right? He's saying that by and large, generally, when we want to protect something, we're pretty effective at it. And that's exactly what he's pushing back against. We're too good at protecting our stuff. The point is that earthly treasure is temporary. It will not last. In fact, it cannot last because it was designed to be temporary. Think about that. Earthly valuables are designed as a temporary means to accomplish eternal purposes. Every good gift that God has given us in the world is intended to teach us about God, to satisfy us in God, and to draw us to God. All things are from him and through him and to him. The physical and the temporal prepare us for the eternal. And so by nature, storing up things for future use that are temporary goes against their purpose. Good stewards, as we see in Matthew 25, are those who put their resources to work for the master. Earthly treasures, as valuable and precious as they are, are temporary. And here's the second thing. This is fundamental to Jesus because temporary treasures demand our attention. Because we know that temporary treasures are temporary, we go to great lengths to preserve them as long as we can. Have you guys ever felt that? Like, you know it's not going to last, but you want to make it last as long as you can. We know that it could disappear at any moment, just like Joe and his estate. We don't know when we breathe our last breath. And so we do what we can to protect everything we own as long as we can. The very act of protecting anything demands great attention and investment. Look at verse 21. This is a phrase that we've heard a million times. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One writer says it this way, the place of investment reveals the commitment of the heart. In other words, where your heart 
wants to find security will result in you making an investment in that thing. But then, it doesn't just end there. Once our heart has been exposed as something um, worldly or earthly, seeking temporary security, and we make that investment, then the investment further solidifies the heart that's seeking the wrong thing. Do you catch that? Like, because we make the investment, now we have to protect the investment because we don't want to lose the investment. We need the ROI. But all the while, our hearts are seeking security in the wrong thing, and we're investing in that false sense of security, and we're giving our attention to it. We become consumed with it, and that's where anxiety creeps in. Even, just let me share this with you. As I'm studying all this, I'm, I'm studying the little caveats and the objections to what I'm saying, and I'm thinking about investing. And so then I just start Googling like investment portfolios, and then I start thinking like, oh, I could actually do this. I could invest in this thing. Oh, I wonder, I wonder if that investment, would, and before I know it, in two minutes, my mind is completely focused on the stupid investment. Just to prove a point in this sermon, guys, when our hearts are tied to the wrong thing, it consumes our attention. When we want to protect the earthly temporary treasure, it consumes our attention. And it's the heart that Jesus is going after. He's not preaching against valuable things. Do you hear that? He's not preaching against valuable things. He's not preaching against the good gifts that he gave to us. He's preaching against a heart that is divided. Earthly treasures are temporary, and temporary treasures demand our attention, and divided attention prohibits wholehearted devotion. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. It's impossible. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. The lifestyle of Jesus that we need to learn is a lifestyle of wholehearted devotion to the kingdom of God. A divided heart cannot be wholeheartedly devoted. Think about it this way. If you are a master of a servant who is also serving another master, neither master is is the guy is not fully accessible to either. How many of you tried to work two different jobs before at the same time? It's really hard to be fully accessible to both. If a husband is split in between two romantic relationships, he is not faithful to either. And if a disciple of Jesus is consumed by earthly possessions, he's divided and not devoted to the kingdom. You cannot serve, verse 24, God and money, or as some translations say, mammon. You cannot serve both. It seems literally insane in our culture to say these words. Don't store up earthly treasures for yourself. But let's just be honest here. It's actually insane to waste your life devoting attention to the preservation of temporary things that are meant to be used to advance the kingdom now. That's insane. The book of James says that the double-minded person is what? Unstable in all their ways. 
A divided heart is not a devoted disciple, and it will not lead to bearing abundant fruit. It won't lead to that oak tree of potential. It'll be shriveled and dry. This is exactly what Jesus means when he says in verse 22, look at it. If your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If we cannot spiritually discern the light of wholehearted devotion to the king, specifically in the area of earthly treasures, then we're going to continue walking in the darkness of spiritual absurdity. We're going to be always anxiously pursuing and protecting the temporary treasures with clutter, which clutter us into hurried, half-hearted discipleship. Clutter in our lives is a symptom of a spiritual problem of improper priorities. The teaching here is in the context of spiritual disciplines because we need the intentional, ongoing spiritual discernment with a physical effort to guard our hearts against the demands of our society and materialism. You catch that? It's a spiritual discipline because we need spiritual insight followed by ongoing effort. Flannery O'Connor, the famous author, once wrote, push back against the age as hard as it pushes against you. The solution to having too much stuff, according to Jesus, is a healthy spiritual eye that sees the stuff for what it is and then propels you to the aggressive elimination of anything you don't need and the responsible use of what is important to advancing the kingdom. This practice of streamlining your possessions to maximize kingdom living is what we call the discipline of simplicity. It is the outward and ongoing practice of not storing up for yourself earthly treasures. On a basic level, simplicity just means plain and natural and not complicated. Sounds nice, right? Who likes a complicated life? Not me. We're not just talking about someone simple who's unintelligent or unwise, even though Proverbs uses the term simple in that way. We're talking about simplicity in the sense that what you see is what you get. We're talking about a singularity of focus and identity that is an uncomplex pursuit of priority which permeates every area of life, even your closet. And by definition, it's the opposite of duplicity. As a spiritual discipline, here's again, Richard Foster defines it this way. Simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle that sets possessions in proper perspective. Another guy, Josh Becker, describes the discipline as this. The intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. Now let me just stop here for a minute because I think there's a temptation for us to hear teaching, this teaching from Jesus and think, well, like my life is already pretty basic. I'm not wealthy. I don't have a whole lot. Eh, doesn't really apply to me that much. Let me just say it this way. 
we think that we don't really have that much, but if you go on howrichamI.com, you're going to get a different story. My family in the United States is poor, according to the government, but in the global wealth index, I'm richer than 80% of the world, like 80% of the world. So we need to all hear this. Even if we have a basic life and we don't have a whole lot, we are wealthy. Even if you have $4,000 to your name, you're richer than half the world. Think about that. Think about the context of who Jesus was speaking to when he said these things. He was speaking to farmers and fishermen, people who lived simple lives. They didn't have a whole lot. They didn't have the technology we have. They didn't have nearly as much stuff as we do, and yet he's still saying this to them. Don't store up earthly treasures. If Jesus placed such an emphasis on it in that simpler context, how much more do we need to listen? Like, where do we feel the freedom to ignore this discipline? How do we think we're going to live in our society and not have the discipline of simplicity and be okay? Could it be that our spiritual eye has been darkened by the lies of culture more than we care to admit? Could it be that we have been both literally and figuratively buying into the counsel of the ungodly marketing gurus at the expense of learning the life of Jesus? Here is the simple truth. If you're not actively practicing the discipline of simplicity parenthesis I do not practice this and I'm preaching to myself here if you're not actively practicing this discipline you have most likely already built up a treasure trove of earthly treasures maybe in your closet maybe in the basement maybe in the garage maybe you have a storage unit the treasure trove is there Start to think through that pile that you've been meaning to get rid of. Like, picture it right now. Think about it. Why are you holding on to those things? Even just the other day, as I'm preparing for this, I'm looking at this coffee grinder that I received as a gift that I love. It's a nice coffee grinder. I love coffee. I haven't used it in months. And I think to myself, here's the famous phrase. You ready for this? Well, I might use it when... How many of you have said that? I might use that, uh, I don't know when, but I might. Let me be clear. Just because you might use something doesn't mean that you need it. When you start to take to heart the teachings of Jesus, like this is a simple teaching. He just says, don't do it. When you start to really take that to heart and think about the implications of how you should change your life as a result, um, when you start listening, it becomes really clear we don't really need a whole lot. Like Jesus actually says, if you read the next part, we need food and we need clothes. And I'll give you a third thing. He says, we need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We don't need anything else. Paul even reinforces this in 1 Timothy 6, where he says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Jesus, when he sends out his disciples to be on mission, to proclaim the kingdom and heal, what does he say? Take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no money, no extra clothes. Nothing. 
The kingdom-focused disciple has no need of excess stuff, but somehow we've drifted so far from that reality. We've, we've just drifted so far from the simple life of a devoted disciple. And it's time that we take on the yoke of Jesus' teaching, like for real, take on the yoke of his teaching and begin the aggressive elimination of the excess stuff. We've got to get rid of the temporary treasures that entangle us in all these other affairs that don't matter for the advancement of the kingdom. They entangle us in anxious clutter. It's just time to stop it. The way of the kingdom that Jesus lays out in Matthew 6 is to discipline ourselves to avoid what we don't need in order to keep our hearts free from distraction. The inward reality leads to an outward lifestyle. Now let me give you a caveat for a second. I had to think through this. I had to read some articles about it to think through it biblically and wisely. Jesus is not saying that earthly treasures are evil. I want that to be clear. Earthly treasures are not evil. Remember, valuable things in the world are there for a reason. Jesus himself relied on wealthy friends who funded his ministry. Jesus had a habit of dining with people who were wealthy, who had good food. Jesus even, like the soldiers divided, they cast lots for his garments, presumably because they were nice. Jesus is not saying that valuable things are wrong. You guys hear that? Do you receive it? All right. He's also not saying that we should never save or prepare. Planning and saving are biblical principles. Think about Joseph in the book of Genesis. He has this divine revelation of a famine that was about to take place. And what does he do? He stores up food for seven years and with that food, he takes care of the needs of thousands of people. Planning and saving are not evil. Look back with me at verse 19. Jesus' prohibition is directed against the storing up of temporary treasures on earth, not having them, not using them, storing them up. You, you catch that? His prohibition is not on having them or using them. It's about storing them up. And here's the key phrase, for, for who? For yourselves. He's prohibiting storing up these things for yourself. The wisdom of the world, if you've watched Doomsday Preppers, is that you must store up things for yourself to be ready. You must store up things for yourself to enjoy. You must store up possessions if you want to be happy. That's the wisdom of the world. Stuff is going to relieve the tension. If your life looks like that Instagram influencer, you're going to be less stressed out. So enter the giveaway. Go get that free stuff that they're getting paid to promote. Store up the treasures to find a better you. That's the wisdom of the world. And the discipline of simplicity pushes back against that message and says... You know what? I actually don't need that to follow Jesus. I actually don't need that to proclaim the gospel and advance his kingdom. I really don't need it. 
The discipline of simplicity takes aggressive outward steps to remove and avoid the world's clutter. But hear this warning. It is easy and even popular to begin the outward practice of simplicity and neglect the inward discernment piece. There's hundreds of minimalist blogs and Instagrammers that want you to be free from stuff, but they want you to do it as a selfish reaction to a selfish problem. And just like any other spiritual discipline, we can make the practice an end in itself and we can turn the whole thing into a legalistic mess that will fail. It's easy and popular to have a simple life for the wrong reasons. One writer on the topic says that pursuing the outward practice of simplicity without being centered on inward purpose is just like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It is an exercise in futility. The successful practice of the discipline of simplicity is motivated by the light, the spiritual discernment and insight that realizes the kingdom of heaven is at hand. King Jesus is on the throne. Amen? He's calling sinners to repentance right now, and he sent his laborers to the harvest. That's you and me. The harvest is ripe, and he's sending us out to advance the kingdom. And it's the disciplined pursuit of exalting the king on his throne and advancing his kingdom in the world that should drive the disciple to a life free of clutter. Without that purpose and that center, it's an exercise in futility. The discipline of simplicity is all about verse 20. Check it out. Store up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where nothing can destroy, no one can steal. The discipline of simplicity is all about a wholehearted devotion to knowing and obeying the king. He has saved us out of the kingdom of this world and transferred us into his kingdom of light. And he set us apart to be ambassadors of reconciliation, to be zealous for good works, to be zealous for generosity. It pleases the Lord when we maximize the potential of earthly treasure to advance the kingdom. It pleases the Lord when we use treasures on earth for the advancement of the kingdom and the gospel on earth as it is in heaven. What feels like a prohibition at first is actually a promise of provision. If you go on to read Matthew 6, the end, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In the beginning of chapter 6, he says, when, when we practice righteousness before the Father in secret for the right reasons, with the right heart motives, the Father who sees us in secret will reward us in heaven. The discipline of simplicity is to be centered upon the king alone. Now, in closing, 
if you've heard a personal trainer explain how to get six-pack abs or a thinner waist, it doesn't help you if you don't put in the work, right? It doesn't help you if you do the workout once and then you stop, right? Spiritual disciplines are very similar in that way. They're much more important than physical fitness, but the principle applies. If you hear this and you don't do the work, it's not going to help. If you want to benefit from the grace that God gives through this spiritual discipline of simplicity, you have to not only do it, but you have to make a practice, an ongoing habit of doing this regularly. The war against materialism in our culture, it's not going to end as long as we're in this world. It's only going to get greater as technology advances because now they have more access to your, to your will and your emotions and your desires. The war is not going to stop right now on this earth. The discipline of simplicity has to be developed both inwardly and outwardly, but it's got to start somewhere, right? We've got to take one step to get the ball rolling. So where do we start? Because this is a spiritual problem, it's a problem of a divided heart and divided attention. We've got to start with confession and repentance before the Lord. It seems silly, like, I need to clean out my closet, so let me go repent. But that is the reality. Clutter is a symptom of a heart problem. And so we can't just skip over the spiritual aspect of the spiritual discipline. Where we've been selfish and wasteful, we need the Lord's grace and forgiveness. Just think about that. When you're wasting kingdom resources, like you need to repent of that. So when we want to start getting the ball rolling, we've got to go to the Lord in repentance. And as we deal with our divided hearts with him, like why am I pursuing all this stuff? What is the thing that I'm trying to get? When we deal with that before the Lord by his grace and by his spirit, the next thing that we need to do is realize that we need his ongoing help. Getting rid of stuff is hard. Do you agree with that? Waging war against the flesh and the world is impossible in your own strength. You're going to find that there's many things that you have that you don't need that you don't want to get rid of. As you begin to apply the discipline of simplicity, it's going to be hard because you're going to want to keep those things and you're going to think of all the reasons you need it. But this is exactly the heart struggle that Paul was speaking into when he wrote those famous words, I have learned how to be content in every circumstance. Paul knows what it feels like to experience the loss of valuable things. Yet he learned how to be content in every circumstance, and here's how. I can do or endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contentment in any circumstance, in simplicity, and even in poverty, even in persecution, is possible because Christ strengthens us by his Spirit. He is with us, and he's eager to fill us with contentment and joy as we trust him giving thanks in everything. 
once you've spent time with the Lord addressing your heart, confessing, repenting, asking for his grace and his spirit's help with this, then it's time to put the outward practice into play. It's time to declutter. It's springtime. It's time to do the spring cleaning. I want to challenge you to take a step this week to do something about it. Like, don't just hear this. Be a hearer and a doer of the word. Start with your closet. I think we all have a closet, maybe. If you don't have a closet, start with your junk drawer or your purse or your backpack. Start with a small area. And I want to challenge you to proceed with this as an act of worship. Sounds weird, cleaning out the closet as an act of worship, but we're supposed to do all things to the glory of God, right? As you stand before your stockpile of treasure, whether it's super valuable or junk that you don't want, as you stand before it, go through the evaluation process with the Lord. There's tons of practical steps. Like you can read blogs and books about the discipline of simplicity, but I'm just going to give you a few. Like this is a helpful process to go through with the Lord. Start from nothing even before you open the closet. Start from nothing from the ground up and say, Lord, what specific things do I need to advance your kingdom in the way that you have gifted and called me specifically? Like what do I need to do that? And the list is going to be short, I promise you that. But we've got to start there. Lord, what have you called me to? What have you given me to do it? What are the resources that I'm working with? And, and what do I need to do this with maximum efficiency? Once you've got that list, now you open up the closet. You've got a starting point, right? You have some criteria. Begin to... Set aside those basic things that you've identified as true needs. Set them aside in a safe place. And then begin to evaluate every single thing in the closet. Everything. And I want you to do this. Ask the Lord, like pick the thing up and say, Lord, do I really need to own this particular thing to do what you've called me to do? Because often we mistake... Um, using something valuable for the need to own it. You catch that? Just because we, we need to use something to accomplish something doesn't mean we need to own it. Think about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. Did he get a donkey two years before and save it up? No. There are many things that we actually need to use occasionally that others would be willing to lend to us or we could borrow from someone. So ask the Lord, do I really need to own this thing to advance your kingdom the way you've called me? The second thing you, you need to ask the Lord is, is there someone else who needs this more than I do? Yeah. All right. Going once, going twice. The way of the kingdom is generosity. You guys hear that? There's a verse later in 1 Timothy 6, which says that, that sharing what you have for the needy is to store up treasures in heaven. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy. The way of the kingdom is generosity. Seeking to share and meet the needs of others is an excellent use of temporary treasure. 
It is a responsible use of gifts that God has given to us. But make sure you wisely discern if that person actually needs it because getting rid of something you don't need and giving it to another person who doesn't need it just perpetuates the problem. So we need to ask the Lord, is there someone else that really needs this and can I give it to them? And once you've asked the Lord those two questions, there's really not going to be much stuff left. And the action step now comes. You have to take the stuff and get rid of it. That's the hard part. You have to get rid of it, whether it's giving it, whether it's maybe it's uh, you're going to sell it, maybe you're going to trade it, maybe you're going to recycle, donate it. You've got to get rid of it. Whatever the most responsible and godly way to get rid of it is, you should do it as soon as possible. And as you let go, like, think about on the Passover feast when they had their little lamb that had lived with them for a year and they had to go kill the lamb. There's a sense of loss that takes place, right? When you have these things that you value that you've stored up for years and you go to get rid of it, you're going to feel a sense of loss. But take that sense of loss and make it a conscious act of dependence on the Lord's promise to provide. You catch that? A conscious act of dependence on the Lord's promise to provide. And then one last thing. The clutter doesn't just exist in our closets. It exists on our phones and our electronic devices. Once you've gone through the process once in your closet, go to your phone and apply the same process. You open up your phone, you've got a thousand inboxes, you've got 20 notifications from 20 different apps, you've got people calling, you've got missed calls, text messages, WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram. The clutter isn't just physical, it's digital. And we've got to apply the same process ruthlessly and aggressively on our phones. And once you've done it, once you've decluttered a little bit, apply the same process again. Before you pick up anything new, apply the same evaluation process. Like, this is an act of discipline that needs to be repeated and ongoing. Let's be doers of the word and not just hearers. Here's one last quote for you. Wherever simplicity fails, overgrowing weed invades the garden of life. The unnecessary, the accessory, the wrong, the false take place of the necessary, the important, and the authentic. And the bright appearance of such a vainglorious life is but a gilded frame for naught and despair. But Jesus says, come to me and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and you will find rest. Our busy calendars and our cluttered closets need to be simplified. We need the rest of the Lord Jesus. Finding rest in Jesus when it comes to our stuff requires a life of simplicity which flows out of a heart of devotion. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, I just thank you for teaching me this week. And I've got a lot I've got a lot of conviction on this topic, Lord things that I need to change. And so I want to lift up my family here. 
Lord, would you give us that spiritual insight? We want to have an eye that is healthy, that discerns the importance of being wholeheartedly devoted to you. Spirit, we need you to come and do that enlightening work in us because we've just bought into the lies, we've bought into the stuff, we've cluttered ourselves up so that we don't have room for you. And Lord, we need to do that unwinding of the spring. We need you to help us with that, Lord. We want to learn how to be content in every circumstance. Lord, we want to learn how to maximize the treasures that you've given to us for your kingdom and glory. Lord, help us to be responsible, to be bold and faith-filled in our use of what you've given to us. Lord, help us to be generous and help us to put these thoughts into action, Lord, that we would be disciplined and devoted disciples. I ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
Lord, we thank you for this reminder. Lord, how our hearts are given to stuff. Lord, I just pray, I pray right now for us as a church, God, that our that we would hunger and thirst for you. Yes. That when we think of the good life, we wouldn't just see the marketing ads of our world and feel all the stuff that I need to have the good life. Lord, we need you, we need you, we need you. Amen. Jesus, let it be that you are our all in all. You are everything for your glory, your sustenance, your beauty is what we need. We just cry out again, I love you, Lord. Yes. Let it just not be something that my lips say, but it be something that my heart knows. And even when the ads of the world come against me, even when things come on my phone again and again and again that says, this is what you need. No, no, no. My heart throbs for one saying, Jesus. Hallelujah. Yes. Let it be, let it be that you have our hearts. And Lord, you warn us. You warn us, as James mentioned, let us be hearers of the word and doers also. We don't want to be like those building their life on sand. That when the storms of life come, final judgment comes, there is a great destruction. The things in this life cannot be satisfied. But how our appetites, spiritual appetites, have just shriveled because we give so much attention and time to the things that don't ultimately satisfy. Like C.S. Lewis, you're inviting us to that vacation at the shore when we're so often just content to play around with mud puddles in the alleyway. Lord, take us to the shore. Expand our appetite for you. Be the true satisfaction. Teach us, Lord, we pray.